Well, good morning. It really is a privilege to, to be here uh, with you all, actually not just this morning, especially this morning, but all of this weekend of being able to uh, spend some time with, with you all, I get to meet you all, have you get to know myself and my family a bit too. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be here uh, in this pulpit, uh, beginning to open the Word of God also to all of you as well. It really is, a, really is humbling uh, to have this, this privilege. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 21, though, this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. If you have a Bible, you can open there. Uh, where this is at the, is at the end of, of the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been raised at this point, and we'll, we'll read there as he has appeared to the disciples twice so far, and he's going to appear to them one more time uh, in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking particularly at the last half of this, but I did want to read all of, every, all of the, the verses leading up to it so far here. Just kind of give us a better idea of what's, what's going on. But let's pray, though, first, before we read God's Word, before we hear it preached. Let's pray that the Spirit of God would be among us right now, opening our hearts. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We are people who need to be hearing from you. Your words are life to us. And we pray that as your Spirit is with us this morning, that he would be taking your word and making it life to us. That we would be smelling the aroma of Christ filling this place, filling our hearts that the aroma of Christ would be upon us and uh, stick in our clothes and in our hair like campfire smoke so that when we would leave from here, people would be able to, to smell, people would know that we have been in the presence of Jesus. Make this word rich to us, form us in his image. In Jesus' name, amen. John 21, verses 1 through 19, this is the word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. It's the word of God. One result of the sinful condition in which we all live is that there are inevitable breaches that enter our relationships with each other. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter who it's with, but you will, though, find yourself at odds with someone that you know and perhaps love very deeply. In fact, it's oftentimes those we know the deepest who we hurt the deepest. And that's why those three life-giving words are so good. I forgive you. And those are particularly sweet words when you're the one who is the prime cause of the whole situation. But sometimes, though, that's the easy part. The hard part is actually living out that you are forgiven and that you're reconciled to that person. Sometimes there's that period of awkwardness that follows immediately afterwards. When you feel like you're on probation, whether it's, it's self-imposed or not, but you feel like you need to try to prove yourself to that other person that you really are sorry, even when they've already said you're forgiven, they've given you those words. It's like we, we still need to, to add something before we feel restored. And there are moments where we apply, we actually misapply that same mindset to God. Can you recall times where you felt like that before? Maybe you have come this morning feeling it here. We open up relational breaches between us and God by our disregard for him and his, his ways. We rebel against him and his designs for our lives. And the beauty of the gospel that we celebrate week after week is that God himself has taken everything necessary, done all the necessary steps to reconcile us back to him by the life and death of his very son. And that's the, the part of the, the liturgy that we celebrated this morning. We are re reminded again of that we are sinners uh, and that we've ripped apart our relationship with God. But then, though, after we come in confession and we hear the words of assurance then, I forgive you, those are sweet words there. We need to hear them over and over. But the question is, do you believe them? Do you believe those words when God says, I forgive you? Even when we receive God's affirmation of his mercy to us in Jesus, it's easy to think that we're still on probation. Or that we need to do something to prove that this time now, this time things are going to be different. It's like getting into God's good graces is something that takes time for us to repay. 
even when his promise of reconciliation is instantaneous. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. And he shows us by this interaction with Peter here as he invites him over for breakfast. There's something intimate. There's something special about sharing a meal, isn't there? Right? You go out to lunch with someone. You grab a cup of coffee with someone. What's it mean? There is a, there's a desire to know and a desire to be known. And how much more when there's something between you and the other that needs to get resolved? And that's what Jesus does here. They sit around a fire sharing a meal, and as Jesus reaches out to Peter, and he takes the initiative for reconciliation. He knows Peter. He knows what a broken, humble disciple he is in this moment. He knows about the denials that he's done. But he also, though, wants Peter to know him, to know his merciful and forgiving love and his kind disposition and to restore him back into fellowship and back into service. And without a probation period here, it's all free from asking him, how are you going to prove yourself? What are you going to do different next time? The Jesus sharing a meal and talking to Peter in our passage this morning is the same Jesus who gives us his same words and the same reconciliation to sinners just like you and me. And then like Peter, then your love and your service to Jesus and to other people then flows from experiencing his gracious reconciliation from being restored. And so we're going to look this morning at four points regarding the restoration that Peter experienced from Jesus and that same restoration which is for us. And the first of those is that restoration is by Jesus' invitation. If we look back to verses 1 through 8 there, the disciples, as they're led by Peter, jumping in the water to swim ahead, they land on the beach where Jesus has just called out to them. And they step out of the boat and what do they see? A charcoal fire with a simple breakfast of fish and bread laid out on it. Now verse 9 specifically says a charcoal fire. There are plenty of times in the Bible where there's these details given and they don't seem to be very important. Like the 153 fish. What does that mean? I don't think it means anything more than that's a lot of fish that they caught. Uh, but there's one though, one instance though of a charcoal fire in the Bible which makes us think, wait, is this one of these, those details that's just kind of superfluous? No. The one other time we read in the Bible, specifically of a charcoal fire, is also in the Gospel of John. In fact, it's just a couple chapters before, in chapter 18, verse 18. And that charcoal fire is outside of where Jesus was being tried by the religious leaders to be unjustly crucified. A fire where his enemies were warming themselves that night. And who else do we see around that fire that evening but Peter? The charcoal fire is the scene of Peter's three denials of Jesus, warming himself with his Lord's enemies. Where out of fear and self-preservation, he would leave his master and identify himself instead with those who were responsible for condemning him. But now, though, we have another charcoal fire. The charcoal fire of Jesus where Peter denied Jesus three times and he wept bitterly because he was devastated by what he had just did. Now here's Jesus inviting himself around his fire. And he sets out a meal for him, a meal of reconciliation. This is a, about to be a painful moment where Peter's wounds are going to be reopened, although his wounds have never truly closed and healed. 
But they're going to be reopened for Jesus to apply the healing balm of reconciliation and forgiveness. Now think about Peter and about how awkward everything must have been before this. The Gospels say that when he denied Jesus the third time, Jesus looked him in the face. And then he goes off and he weeps bitterly. And this is now the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples. What do you think was going through Peter's mind all of those times before when Jesus appeared to him? Joy? Awe? Certainly. But don't you think a little bit of fear also? A bit of embarrassment? Of awkwardness? Maybe even hypocrisy? Because he knows that Jesus knows what he just did. You have to imagine then that that look that Jesus gave him when the rooster crowed was haunting his memory. In fact, even here you see this excitement as Jesus jumps out of the boat to see Jesus, or as Peter jumps out of the boat to see Jesus. But you have to feel, you kind of look like he's, he's still feeling this unresolved tension, thinking that he needs to prove himself. He jumps into the water to get there first. He hauls in the net of fish all by himself just to show he really is committed. But there's something, though, familiar in this whole scene. First of all, they had just spent the night fishing without getting a single catch. And then there's Jesus on the shore telling them to put, put the, the net in on the other side. And then they bring in this enormous haul of fish. Just like when Jesus initially called uh, Peter as, as a disciple, along with his friends, to be, to, be, to be followers of his. It even happens at the same place. It even happens here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's as if he's reminding him of the call that he once put on him to follow him and to be his disciple. And also now, here's Jesus with bread and fish on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it reminds Peter, I'm sure this is going through his mind, as it might be with us too, about Jesus feeding the 5,000 here with bread and fish in the same place in John chapter 6. And in the context of that, later as Jesus calls himself the bread of life, in John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, Jesus is reminding Peter with this breakfast of his love for him, even in his failure as a disciple in that moment, and that he doesn't need to fear being cast away. This is what Peter needs in his despair for denying the Lord. Yes, Peter, you've sinned grievously. You're a, you're a broken man. You failed in the call that I put upon you. But Peter, don't fear that I will cast you away. Don't fear that I will be done with you. And here's the crux of the moment. They sit hunched over the bread and the fish, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Do you love me more than these? Not just do you love me, do you love me more than these, more than these other disciples do? Those denials must have been swirling through his mind. And in this crushing moment, all he can say is, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, you know. Says it not once, not twice, but three times as they go through this. It's this incredibly humbling time for Peter. But Jesus questioning him, though, those three times and pulling the confession from him is for each of his denials around the fire that night. And he isn't doing this to cause Peter pain. He's not doing this to provoke him. He's doing this to give him the opportunity to express his love for him. Because each time, Jesus responds by giving him a task. He says, I do know. 
So take your love for me and go care for my flock. Love me by loving my sheep. Love me by loving what I love. All of us can identify with, with Peter at some point or another. When we're crushed by the weight of what we've done, we, when we feel an estrangement or a strained relationship with God. In fact, perhaps even this morning, it was awkward for you coming to church because you know how you much have you let him down during this last week. Or we've been left humbled because we recognize what we've done. Either the same sinful habits over and over or we see just how deep that wrong goes. And maybe this is one of the first times that you actually found yourself back in church for a long time because you have a strained past or because you felt unworthy to come. Jesus calls to you too. He calls to all of us here. He invites you to come around his fire. He invites you to come back to his place of reconciliation because he has done everything that is necessary for you to be brought back into a proper relationship. It's why he went to the cross in the very first place, to remove all of the sin that causes our embarrassment and our shame before God. He was the one who was shamed on our behalf. He was the one who hung embarrassed and naked before his accusers and before God the Father. Why? So that we wouldn't have to bear shame coming before God anymore. As Jesus was tried and crucified, he died to take away the record of Peter's denial that had just happened. Do you believe that he does that for you too? Jesus doesn't hold grudges. Jesus isn't vindictive. His purpose was in coming here to reconcile. So that when you come in faith and he says you're forgiven, friends, believe those words that he says. And it can be hard, I know, to, to believe that, that personally and existentially when you feel like a hypocrite or when you repeatedly turn back to the same sins again and again. But just because, though, you have a difficult time believing that it's true doesn't make his words any less true. Don't come with awkwardness like you feel like you need to do something to prove your love. But sit around his fire with him. Hear his promise that he gives. The second point about restoration from here, and the first one was the longest point, but restoration empowers us to serve as well. Restoration empowers us to serve. Because when we read about Peter in the gospel accounts prior to this moment here around the fire, he's kind of this arrogant and this reckless man, zealous to, to the degree that, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it a little bit obnoxious, telling Jesus that he would never fall away or he would never deny him telling that he would even be willing to die for him. Even at one point, having the audacity to take Jesus aside and say, maybe you should reconsider this whole cross business. Kind of obnoxious to the point that if so, some of us had met him, we might have had some doubts that this was going to be the apostle who Jesus was going to use for his cause. But look at Peter in this moment now. It adds this extra impact to Jesus' question, do you love me more than these? When he's the only other one, other than Judas, he's the only one who defected. Peter is amazingly and very uncharacteristically quiet in this moment because he's deeply humbled. Maybe I'm not so great as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not so strong. Maybe I'm not so willing. And all he can do is muster, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But this marks a turning point in Peter's life. 
Because the Peter that we read about in the rest of the New Testament isn't quite like the one that we've read about up to this point. It's, this is the Peter now who wrote that we had in our New Testament reading this morning from 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you are, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Or just a little bit later, a few verses later in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he then writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as well as a as fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. The disciple who is brash and arrogant would be the disciple who wrote these words as a humble shepherd to the sheep, and then who carried out the task that Jesus gave him to feed his lambs. The disciple who is fearful and denied his master to avoid the shame would be the one who would someday know what it meant to suffer for the sake of Christ. What changed in him? What changed in Peter? It's this moment of humiliation and of reconciliation. Peter experienced grace personally, and out of that then, it allowed him to pastor well. See, it's, the, it's restoration. It's knowing the grace of Jesus that makes us fit for his service. I'm just getting to know some of you here this weekend. I don't know most of you, your, your histories. I don't know a, a lot of you very well. I don't know your backgrounds. But knowing people, though, I'm certain that some of you come out of broken or sinful pasts. Those could be recent. They could be buried in history. It could be things that you've done. It could be things that have been done to you. But it really doesn't matter because Jesus doesn't hold any of those against you. But it's easy to believe the lie that God only uses people who haven't messed up. Only he, he only uses people who have everything put together. He only uses whole people. But none of that is true. He calls and he uses broken people for his cause. For, for one thing, simply because there are no perfect people. But more importantly, though, it's those who are broken and humbled that are able to be employed for his cause in a way that points to him as the Christ, not to themselves. Knowing grace doesn't harden us. Knowing grace softens us. It allows us to love because we bear the indelible mark of Jesus' love for us. Grace changes how we act among others. It changes how we speak to them. We become more gentle as Jesus is gentle and as Jesus continues to be gentle with us. When I know reconciliation and mercy, I will look at other people differently, particularly those who are bogged down, particularly those who are lost, because I know myself. And I know that it's only by Jesus extending himself to me that I have anything in the first place. When we are broken and we come face to face with the reality of our Savior amid our neediness, it then allows us to enter into the lives of other people. See, your past failures don't need to be an impediment to being used for Jesus' kingdom. Perhaps we're even better equipped to pull the focus from ourselves then and to cast our hopes instead upon Jesus. But the third point about restoration is that restoration is a continuing work. Verse 18, Jesus gives this curious bit of information. He tells Peter, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What does this mean? He's revealing Peter's fate, martyrdom. In a younger life, he was free. But in, later in life, he's going to be carried away by the authorities 
because of his ministry. Verse 19 alludes to this, but so does verse 18 when it says, stretch out your hands. There's a common phrase that we use in reference to crucifixion where the one being put on the cross was told to stretch their hands out across the bar. Peter will not turn tail and hide like he did at Jesus' crucifixion. But then Jesus says, follow me. And he does. Peter follows. But why? The natural responses would be to, first of all, seriously question whether or not he's to be trusted. Isn't he going to deny Jesus again? Is Peter possibly worth the liability of taking him back? In fact, you might even think Peter himself is thinking these things in the back of his mind. But again, consider those words of Jesus to him that he has just spoken there. You're going to die for me. You're going to be crucified for my cause. Peter may have once been a coward, and probably Peter still was at this point. But Jesus' words are intended, though, to give him confidence as he goes forward. It's a promise that he gives. He's going to do what seems to be unimaginable for someone like him. Martyrdom. But not because of his own strength. Not because of his own ability. This isn't self-help. It's not a call for Peter to better himself or to just grow in his confidence. Peter will be able to follow Jesus, this time all the way to his own crucifixion, because of what Jesus promises to do within him. There's going to be a work that's going to be going on inside of him. And that work here is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to give Peter a gift. He's going to give him, give him the Spirit, but not just to Peter. He's going to give it to his whole church. He's going to give it to even us. The Spirit would be at work in Peter to transform and to remake this coward. Brothers and sisters, this same Spirit is in you also. It's at work in you. And if it, he can do this in Peter, he can do this in you also. He's slowly using his Spirit of restoration to remake and to transform you into the image of Christ there is very real change for you to experience in Jesus. He is the source of our life. He's the source of our righteousness before God. But he's also the source of our growth. And this restoration work by the Spirit is into the image of Jesus. And it's how God the Father looks at you right now. He calls us new creations. But sometimes we feel more like construction zones, though. With our framing still exposed with pipes and wires hanging out, piles of dirt all over the place. But when God looks at his people, he does so like the architect with his rendering of the finished product. He has the picture of what everything is going to look like at the end when the renovation is complete. He's able to see past all the chaos, all the mess of what's going on in the construction zone to actually see the vision of what you will be in perfection and what you will be in completion. And not only is he able to see that vision, it's how he sees you right now in Jesus Christ as you sit here in these pews. It's how he sees you as you go out from here and as you go to work, as you parent your children. But that renovation doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes there are frustrations because you don't feel like you're growing in the ways that you ought or growing to the, to the degrees that you ought or it feels like sometimes that you're regressing. But you're still a work zone. And God has promised to still be at work in you. And if you look carefully, you might even find bits of progress in some places, in some corners where you didn't expect. 
But like so many of Jesus' words, this must have caught Peter off guard. But later, though, through his life, these must have been, in some strange way, comforting to him. A former coward, Peter's identity wasn't in, in denying Jesus. We too often remind ourselves that our former sins, that our, our former failures um, are, are that which defines ourselves. But that's not what Peter's identity is here. It's not in what he had done around that fire that evening. It's in what Jesus had called him and what he was making him into. Your identity isn't defined by your particular sins. It's not defined by your weaknesses. It's not defined by how you've fallen in the past. Your identity is in what God, by Jesus' work, calls you. And it's in what God, by what the Spirit, is making you. Do you find yourself at times to be focusing on your failures and to be taking your identity in that? In in who you think you are now because that's what you can see? Don't. Look at what you will be. Look at who God says you are and what he's doing in you to see who you really are right now. And so Jesus calls Peter once again. He says, follow me. Despite how he sinned egregiously against his Lord, he still says, follow me. Because Jesus provides reconciliation and Peter's deeply humbled. Discipleship entails failure. You and I, as we seek to follow Jesus as disciples, we will inevitably fail. In fact, younger folks, you're going to fail. You're going to fail at times sometimes when you are a disciple. You're going to stumble, you're going to falter, you're going to sin. And I don't tell you any of these things to say that it's okay, not to give you an excuse. You're going to be an imperfect disciple. That's the reality of it. But the question, though, isn't whether or not you're, you're going to fail. But what will you do after you fail? What will you do after you fall? Will you grow despondent? Will you grow fearful? Or will you, though, again, look to the cross as Jesus says, follow me? Because being a disciple isn't about being a a strong or a brave Christian. It's not about a life of triumph and bravery. It's recognizing that we are imperfect disciples and that we have lives that are riddled with failure. But discipleship is a life of repentance. When Jesus tells us to follow him, we look at where where he went. He went to the cross for you and I. And so we repent of our shortcomings. We revel in the identity that he in turn then gives us by his perfect life. We are people who are defined by grace. Both as we are reconciled to God and as we advance to further live out by the Spirit our new identity in Jesus. And the last point about restoration here is that restoration comes through a meal. Now this life-changing moment that altered the trajectory of Peter's life from failure to grace happened over a simple breakfast cooked over the fire. It was through a meal that Jesus restored Peter back to himself and to be used once again. Meals are where um, places where we share fellowship with one another. It's where we invite people to come and to sit around our tables, to get to know them, to hear them, to be known by them in, in turn. It's where it's of, of giving, of hospitality. And I've been a beneficiary of much of your hospitality this weekend. And there's been the, the knowing, uh, the, the, the getting to know each other. It's no different with Jesus here. In fact, isn't it profound that he would use a meal to invite Peter back into a renewed fellowship with him? 
It's not by accident that he would do that. It shows a real intent. And he continues to show that restorative intent with us at a meal. He sets out a supper for failures, for sinners, for the humbled and the broken. He invites ordinary people just like you and myself. Not mighty people, not the good, but so that we will again come back around his table and know his reconciliation. And as we come to his table a little bit later here, he doesn't set out bread and fish. He sets out something better. He sets out bread and wine for us. The very emblems of his body and his blood that were given for us. He invites us to come to his table where he will feed us then by what we need the most. His very self who is crucified on the cross to reconcile us back into proper fellowship. And we come and we eat. We don't do anything but we receive and we receive him. In fact, those three previous points about restoration from the sermon here also happen at the table. It's his invitation to know reconciliation with him again. Each week as we come back to his table, as we eat the meal that he sets out, he reminds us that we are restored into a right relationship with him. We don't need to fear him. We don't need to feel awkward or ashamed. It's where he renews us into service yet again because we understand his mercy anew and our total reliance upon him than to act with similar mercy towards others. He continues to be at work within us when we come around his table and we see the meal that he's prepared for us. We experience his mercy in real, tangible ways so that we can be changed. The bread and the cup are signs of his promise to see us through into the end, all the way even when we enter into glory. And, it's, and he promises to always be our God and to always be at work within us until that day. We see the bread. We're reminded of his faithfulness as we touch it. We smell, we taste the cup, and we're reminded that his blood has sealed us as his people right now. And he's sealed the promise for who we will be. And so, friends, Jesus has set his table, his meal, out for you here. In just a few minutes, he's going to invite you to come and eat from the meal that he's put before you so that you too can be reconciled and restored and renewed and empowered then according to his promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise that your son has given to us when he said, all who come to me, I will never cast out. We love that, Lord. It is our life. There is no other place for us to turn other than to you, and you will not cast us out. Lord, would you help us to learn that more, to have it sink into us, that our initial inclination would, upon, upon repenting and coming to see our sin would not be of turning around and hiding in shame, but that it would be coming and in humility and pressing in and taking hold of Jesus yet again. Will you help us to love that more, to truly believe your promise of reconciliation? Increase our comprehension. Help us to know that more so that you would soften us to better serve others, to show forgiveness and reconciliation to others, to have that as the empowering uh, a wind in our sails to go forth into this community and into this world. And Lord, would that be that which gives us hope also in the middle of our, of our strivings for change, knowing that you are working in us, that you will not cast us out, 
and that your reconciling mercy is always there for us. Lord, change us more and more into the image of Jesus through that. As we come soon to your table, God, give us a hunger for Jesus. Allow us to come famished and to be satisfied as we come, as we eat from his body and drink from his blood. In Jesus' name, amen.